And good morning, everybody. Welcome again to our church. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. So if you're visiting, uh, welcome to our gathering, our church gathering. And we are going to dive right into our sermon series today, which has been for several weeks now on the Song of Solomon, which is one of the Old Testament uh, wisdom literature books. It's poetry. And it's eight chapters long. So we're about, today we're going to finish chapter four. So we're basically right at the halfway mark today. This will take us through just before Memorial Day, I believe, a couple of breaks for Easter and uh, so forth. But a lot to talk about, so we're going to dive right in. Uh, Spencer said last week, we're in a bit of a two-week mini-series within this greater series. So it's been about, it's about a 15, 16, maybe 17-week long series overall, but a bit of a mini-series, two-week mini-series within that series uh, on the Song of Solomon. Uh, and the mini-series is on sex. As these past two weeks, chapter four in particular, we're going to chapter five, one today, but basically all chapter four, addresses consummation and sex more explicitly than other parts of the book do, though it's all about love uh, and relationship in one sense, and it's alluded to elsewhere. This is the moment, poetically at least, where uh, the consummation occurs. Uh, we talked about the wedding a couple weeks ago. This is the wedding night, just for context uh, there as well. Though we will revisit this theme in chapter seven uh, as, as well. And next week, a little bit more on conflict, but we'll get there uh, in coming weeks. But because of this, uh, just, just a heads up on the content here, it's going to be a little bit more PG-13 plus-ish uh, than normal, with certain terms used, uh, just to give you guys a heads up on where we are headed. We put a note on the parents group in the table, uh, just for those of you uh, that that particularly pertains to. But uh, with this said, though, we are, as we've been throughout the series, going to focus uh, a little bit more on the spiritual side of this theme and passage. Anyway, because as we've been saying about marriage in general, we can say about sex as well. And that is, sex is not ultimately about us. It's about God. And if that's the case, then we should talk more about him than it when we talk about it. So we're going to talk about it, but if it's ultimately not about it, it's not on an island meaning-wise, if it's about God, if God invented it and also intends it to tell us something about himself, some particular aspect about the gospel of Jesus Christ and his character, then we should ultimately uh, talk more about him when we talk about it. So we'll get there. We'll start with more of this human principle side and move on to that divine side in a little bit, but I want to start there because a lot of you are single, uh, not married yet, maybe engaged, uh, but a lot of you are single, and, that, and we, we, we mention these things to get at the idea that it doesn't really matter where you are marital status-wise, you can still get at it. Marriage, marriage is not ultimate. You don't need to be married. You don't have to have sex to get true meaning in this life. Jesus was single. Paul, for a good chunk of his life, was single. It's not ultimate. Uh, it's rather a shadow. It's rather a dramatization of a spiritual reality that we can use to, to help us learn something more about more important matters, like who is God? What happened on the cross? Who are we in relation to him? How are we saved? Things like that. So uh, with that said, a lot of you singles probably will be married someday, so uh, there's, there's stuff to be said about what good sex is and stuff like that too that we can glean from the scriptures, Song 4 and other places that we'll be in. So again, uh, Song of Solomon is an, a love poem between a man and a woman that covers their engagement, their wedding, their wedding night, and early parts of their marriage together. Uh, it's about overcoming obstacles, really, relational obstacles. And a lot of those obstacles aren't this, you know, this obvious antagonist in the story. That, that's just this clear, you know, personified thing or an actual individual that's trying to be overcome. Sometimes it's just distance, or, or it is a minor conflict, or, or, or as we'll see today, some other things uh, arise that you might not be inclined to think, well, that's an obstacle, like an enemy, but it kind of is when it comes to really becoming one 
with uh, another individual that you love. So at least have that in mind. If you're new to the book, and this is a really cryptic book, it's, po- it's poetry and prophecy kind of blended, which is like a two-headed dragon. If you're trying to get at meaning, it's like, oh my gosh. But um, at least have that idea. You know, if this is about a man and a woman in love coming together, and partly that looks like sex, and part it's just simply marriage more broadly, but along the way, there's these obstacles, and they're longing to be united. They're longing to be, longing to be one, and that's a really, really good thing. And so in it, though, as I said before, hidden at times beneath this more obvious layer of human love is this glimpse of divine love, where God says to us through a poem and a relationship story like this, I am kind of like this husband. I am like this Solomon, this king who, who, loves this, who loves his bride in my love for you. I'm kind of like this over here. But even greater is my love than this love. And that's what he whispers to us. Prophetically, he whispers to, it, to us poetically. He whispers to us a, a glimpse of Christ 900 years before Christ walked the earth, uh, but still about him nonetheless. So, so have those two things in mind. What can we learn here about human relationships, particularly about sex? What do the scriptures speak? How do the scriptures speak into this uh, as a part, a key part to a human marriage relationship, but also where is the Lord in this? And we'll, we'll take them in that, in that order. So let me start. Song 4, 9 to 5, 1. Brian, I feel a little bit loud. You turn me down just a touch. Thank you. All right, song 4, 9 to 5, 1. Start. He speaks most of the time, uh, but she'll uh, speak one verse here in just a minute. It's mostly him. Verse 9. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine, the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride, honey and milk, are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all choice spices. A garden fountain, a well of living water, and flowing streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. All right, well, I want to start here uh, by actually reading uh, another part of the scriptures from 1 Corinthians 7, 1 to 5 in the New Testament, a bit of a companion reading, you could say, that will come at this same topic from a complementary angle. This is biblical poetry, which paints sex in a very positive light, as you could probably pick up. Then there's, there's more of a, a, a letter-based or an epistle-based, preposition-based way that uh, the Bible talks about sex as well, a little bit more clear that uh, this will kind of help complement. So, a little context, though, on the Corinthian church, if you're new to that, one of the churches that the Apostle Paul planted and wrote to, had some correspondence with throughout his life and ministry that, that addresses a lot of topical things, because he has these letters he gets from them, and they ask him about stuff, and he writes them back. But if you know anything about them, you know that they're an extremely dysfunctional church. Uh, we all are, all churches are to a degree, but this one, uh, you know, if you, 
ever having a bad day in church leadership? Some of you are in leadership or you will be. It's kind of a good book to read to make you feel better about yourself. But, but then you're like, at the same time, you look at that and say, yeah, this is a mirror. You know, we're all this messed up too. But anyway, uh, in the Corinthian church though, it, within the church, you have issues like, in, this is amongst Christians, issues like incest that are all addressed in, in the first Corinthians letter, prostitution, uh, prideful factions, like Christian competition, Christians suing one another, so taking each other to court and suing one another for different types of goods, feeling wronged and, and all of that, so warring again. People getting drunk on the communion wine when they gathered and not leaving enough for other people to partake. Uh, you name it. And uh, Oh, and there's more. So an, another issue is that when they were gathering, they were having, so there, there'd be this one faction that would uh, really be licentious sexually, so prostitution, uh, incest, uh, a man sleeping with his mother-in-law and different things like this going on and a lot of liberality. But then on the other side of this, this faction where people are saying all sex is bad, all sex is bad, except for procreation. It's good to have sex to make a kid or something like that, but I guess that's utilitarian. We got to do that. God says somewhere in the Bible, it's a mandate, so we should probably have a kid uh, if, if we're allowed to or all that. But then other than that, sex is not a good thing. It's not good for a man and a woman to be together sexually. So you have, picture like in one church, you've got these factions kind of trumpeting that, you know. So it's in and of itself, that's like an issue. But so they, these, this faction over here writes to Paul about it and just looking for some confirmation on that perspective. Like this is true, right? This is true that uh, sex is, in, is not overall not a good thing. And so Paul, uh, Paul writes back and responds. Let me read that. 1 Corinthians 7 uh, verses 1 to 5. So now concerning the matters about which you wrote, so they wrote this to him. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, right? Paul's response. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So we're going to start then uh, pulling from both Song 4, uh, which we read earlier in 1 Corinthians 7, make a couple of affirmations here about what the Bible says about sex. You can just read Song of Solomon 4 and you're going to get to the end of that, like we probably, a lot of you just did, and thought, well, that's a positive spin on sex. It just seemed like it was painted positively. And then you have passages like this where contextually, historically, you've got people that are not affirming that and Paul's writing to kind of counter it. So you've got all kinds of things going on and probably a lot of different representations here in the room as well on our perspectives on the matter, whatever our uh, marital status. But the overall, on, on this human side of Song 4, what sort of learning about sex and human relationships, the overall affirmation that a lot of which actually Spencer hit on last week and I'll uh, reaffirm some of this and add a few of my own, but the overall thing is sex is a really, really good thing. God created it, and the Bible paints it as a very good thing. And, and so you see that when they're writing Paul this letter and looking for some, you know, pat us on the back here, give us a little bit of affirmation, we're right on this, right? Paul's response is kind of yes and no. So in, in, the, in the early church, and this is true today too, there's this dualistic worldview, I mentioned that, but uh, where the, the physical is really, really bad, but the spiritual is really good. It's not a biblical worldview at all. Uh, it's, it's a very pagan one, actually, in a lot of ways, certain types of paganism. But in any case, 
Um, it's not biblical, not a biblical worldview. We affirm as Christians that God made everything that we see out of, everything physical exists because God intended it. It became corrupted and cursed, but there's still that God intended goodness uh, in at least for, you know, most things. Things like sex. Sex would fall into that category of God, something God intended to be good, but it was perverted and corrupted. It became, began to occur outside the marriage context and all kinds of twisted versions of it and so forth, but at its core, it's still, still good. So Paul's addressing that. He's basically saying, you guys are right that sex outside the marriage context is not good. You're right about that, but sex in the right context is a very good God-designed thing. So many of you should get married and have sex with that person a lot. That's basically his application. You guys should, you should think about getting married, and I mean sex with that person a lot for the rest of your life till death do you part. And if you're married and abstaining from sex for too long, for crying out loud, stop it. Uh, don't deprive one another. Uh, have sex a lot. It's part of, why, part of why you are married. And again, don't deprive is, is one of the key uh, imperatives uh, or commands in 1 Corinthians 7. So a lot of reasons for this type of encouragement. Again, it's, uh, it's suggested poetically in Song 4, more explicit here in 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, and I go here for that explicitness. Uh, many reasons for it. Going to go outside the passage a little bit here too. But for one, God just likes to give good gifts. We know this from the scripture. James 1 says this, the giver of all good gifts is God. And all good gifts, everything that we can affirm is good, is we can't say just kind of appeared. And God didn't coexist with matter in the beginning and just kind of influenced it. Nothing existed except God. And he made it all as some kind of extension of himself to, to be a gift uh, to, to people, and sex falls into that category. God likes to give, he's like a dad. The Bible actually says in one part that he's like a father, really good dad or mom, who likes to give gifts to his children. And so that's, that's so God, God has given us this way into this idea by saying, well, you see this happen. Are you a father? Are you a mother? Do you enjoy watching your kids get excited when you give gifts? The Bible says that's what God is like. Isn't that incredible? I mean, talk about something we don't like default to right? We usually default to God as the angry boss, but God's saying, no, I, I am, I'm full, full of wrath and judgment against sin, but I'm also full of intense fatherly love. I love to give, love to give good, good gifts. So God gives them, and, and sex is not just for procreation. We know this because Adam and Eve had sex before Eve conceived Seth, um, or sorry, Cain, before Eve, Eve conceived Cain, and so we know that it was not something just for having kids, and we could put that up here. Kids are wonderful gifts from the Lord as well, but it's not, sex does not just exist for the sake of procreation, it exists for just the sake of sex uh, in the context of marriage. So if you've ever had good sex then it, with your spouse, if you're married here today, if you've ever had good sex, you should thank God, pause and thank God, because that came from no one, ex, no, nowhere else except the Lord. The Lord's the giver of, of that gift. All right, second, uh, sex also battles, as it says here in this uh, secondary passage, battles Satan and temptation. Sex actually thwarts satanic temptation. So the first thing you think about when you think about doing spiritual warfare or something or uh, warring against darkness or um, we think about other things, which are good things like gathering with your church community, sitting under Bible teaching, prayer, community, confession of sin, um, again, just friendship or community or something, something else like that. All very, very important things. But Bible also says if you're married, have lots of sex with your spouse, because that will actually push back darkness and take away context that the enemy can use to get his foot, get his foot in the door and tempt you. And so if that's the case, then um, if, if you're taking away context, there'll be less situations where 
uh, where you're tempted. Though he's not saying that it's going to take away sexual sin. If you're married, you know this. If you're not married, you're wondering. You should know that. It does not in any way take away all sexual sin uh, thoughts or temptations, I should say, but also sin. Uh, it just takes away a few contexts here and there, and it fights the devil. So, I mean, think about that the next time you're tempted to think that sex is not spiritual. Whenever you're tempted to think that sex is just not a spiritual thing, read a verse like this. Sex is deeply, deeply spiritual. All right, and then third here, uh, to come together at the, at the highest level in the greatest way. Sex is, is the ultimate form of coming together in marriage. 1 Corinthians 7, 5, just, it's a very simple statement, but when he says come together, that's an idiom for sex. Come together, have, have sex. So you aren't having sex, you're, you're sort of apart for a little while, and then you come together and you have that physical closeness, and that uh, you, should, you should do that. And Song 5, 1 uses the same language, I came to my garden, and, and the garden is the bride. And that's actually 5, 1 is the, actually the moment of, of sex and consummation. All of that up to that point in chapter 4 is really foreplay, you could say, or verbal foreplay, I guess. But in any case, Song 5, 1 is that moment, um, so it's there as well. It's really a way to say, uh, sex is really a way to say, I'm yours in every way. In every single way, I'm yours. I'm giving you absolutely every, every part of me. Uh, because there's no more, at least physically speaking, but I think it goes deeper than that too, because it's very emotional and spiritual. But it's a way to say, say to someone with their actions, I'm giving you everything. Uh, no, no more, no more barrier. And so to spin off on that, a fourth thing here, uh, it, it does that. It overcomes barriers. Remember, that's a huge piece to what's going on here in Song of Solomon, right? Is overcoming barriers, overcoming barriers, overcoming barriers. Sex does that. Even if we don't think every day, not that we have to always label it this, but if you go to work and you're not around each other and you love each other, that's not ideal, right? You want to have coffee. You want to have dinner and talk. You want to have sex. And so those are, those are moments where you're not. There's like many you know, antagonist-like personified things that, that, that are going on in the poem here and then just in life, experience we can affirm this too, that need to be overcome. And sex overcomes those types of distance barriers. Or like this final barrier, as I say here, I think the final barrier really between a man and a woman is clothing. Really, right? I mean, it's just that final thing that's coming in between a man and a woman. And eventually it comes off and they're naked, they feel no shame and they're happy and they have sex. And then there's no more barrier, Right? after that. In the beginning, Adam and Eve had no clothes. They were naked and felt no shame. It's only after sin came into the world that God created clothing to cover up people's shame. And that's a good thing too, right? It'd be weird if you're naked all the time. So clothing's a gift. It's a gift of grace, but it's, it's also an obstacle, something not intended necessarily in the beginning between a man and a woman. And it's this thing that like, like a wife would, uh, a husband and wife in love would uh, affirm every, every day even, multiple times a day, or a husband to a wife look at clothing and say, that's an enemy. Like, that's a problem. I, I, I prefer if that was just off my wife right now. You know, that, 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 so that's its mini barrier, right? And sex overcomes, it crosses that divide, it takes away that thing that's separating them from being ultimately, ultimately close in the most physical sense of the word. It's love. Note in Song uh, 4, 12, too, he uh, refers to her as a garden locked. So but before sex, up to this point, he's speaking about her, but before sex, there's still a sense to which she's locked up and unenterable by him. And so sex is this unlocking of and, and giving up of the body to someone else. So to spin off of that then, uh, this fifth and final thing, another reason why it's encouraged to add a, a little bit of a spiritual twist to it, although it's come up already, 
to give and serve to your spouse in the spirit of the gospel. Uh, and note this radical, just countercultural, unworldly language here in, in verses three and, 3 and 4. The husband and his wife should give each other their conjugal rights for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And Song 4 uses the phrases uh, of ownership, like, my garden, my bride, and she says, my beloved. And elsewhere in the song, it says, I think in triplicate, I think it's three times, but it might be more, where I am my beloved's and he is mine. There's that idea of, of ownership. And we'll use this too, right? If you're married, you've, you've talked about your, your, my wife or my husband. There's a sense of um, we've given ourselves over to that person and, and kind of lost our individual identities to a degree, kept it to a degree as well, but we've become one flesh in this new resurrected uh, marriage, this unity uh, between two people that is beautiful. And so this ownership idea is huge. Not something you normally hear about too in the world. Uh, some of you guys are single. Uh, if you're married, this is important to hear too as a reminder. Hope, I mean, hope to some degree you've, you've gotten this, but if not, it's all right. We'll just talk about it today. Uh, but if, if you want to remain king or queen of your life, the worst thing you can do is get married. The worst thing. Don't do it. If you think about getting married and you want to remain in control of your life, don't do it. I mean, marriage is about giving up complete control. It's, it's the opposite. The Bible says if you, if you want to die, if you're so in love that you, you want to die, be prepared to die. That's a, good, that's a good place to start. And none of us will be perfect in this area, so don't wait for like a perfect you know, starting point, heart, mind, whatever. But have that starting point uh, you know, in, in the forefront of, am I willing to die? Do, do I want to put this person first? And not, not just physically die, I mean, especially a man to a woman dying for his wife. That's a huge gospel image, image we've talked about a lot in the series so far, but, but both ways. But also emotionally. You know, if, if you think, it's, if it's the other way around, this is a big-time worldly perspective on marriage, by the way, too. If, if you think that I love this person, I'm attracted, I want to have sex, I want to be close, I want to be good friends, but I really want them to help kind of bolster my personal agendas in life. I really want them to kind of make, not just make me better, but to help me accomplish all my goals. It's very selfish. And it's, it's more of a meeting in the middle type idea on marriage, not a very biblical one, and a terrible one to start out on, because you'll just You'll be disappointed, you'll abuse your spouse because you'll use them, you won't serve them, and it'll probably end really badly. <laughs> Not to be too pessimistic, but unless you get help and just shift your way of thinking. And if you are there, just shift your, talk to someone. Uh, if, it's a, if it's a perspective issue, it's not like your marriage is doomed. Just talk to someone about it. Talk to me or Spence or one of the overseers or uh, Emily Kleiber here on staff with leading our women's ministry. We'd love to talk to you more about what the Bible actually says about what your, your mindset, your perspective should be on a regular basis. Part of it is, I don't own myself anymore. It's not about you. Marriage is not about you. Same idea when we're saved. If you're a Christian, you believe this. So it shouldn't be too hard of a bridge to cross because if you're a Christian, you believe, as the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, that, that God bought you with a price. And it says, you no longer belong to yourself. Uh, you, 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 God, God has purchased you with his blood back from sin and death, and you belong to him. Uh, your body, your soul, your mind, everything. It's one of those beautiful, he's actually in that way saved. It's not just kind of given us a path, but he's actually gone personally to the level of purchasing us back from sin and death with his son's shed blood. So we've got to apply that way of thinking to marriage as well and just end the, the, the personal, selfish, driven agenda in marriage and make it all about the other person. 
So sex, then, is another way to say all of that. I'm no longer alive. I'm surrendering my selfishness. I'm opening up to this other person in every sense of the word and giving them authority over my body to the point where we don't deny our spouses sex, even if, they, even if, I don't, if we don't want to have sex in that moment. The Bible says, don't deny them. It's not because it's not about you. If it's, if it's about you, then it'd be a lot easier to do that, right? We could say, well, if I don't feel like it, then I'm going to make that decision. But and obviously there are times to not have sex. There's, you know, all, there's reasons. If someone's sick or actually the Bible says in this passage, uh, if you agree, it's, it's awesome though because they qualify it so, so like tightly. It's like, if you agree, you know, you deprive one another, but only if you agree. If one person doesn't want to, then it's all off. But if you agree, and only for a limited time, for the sake of prayer, some kind of spiritual reason, or you know, someone's sick, or something else, uh, only for a limited time, then come back together quickly again, so that you're not led away to temptation, and that you can have that type of deep uh, closeness and oneness physically in your marriage. That's such a cornerstone of, of a healthy, healthy marriage. But again, the idea of not owning our bodies anymore, or having authority over our bodies anymore, uh, makes it much easier to say, it's not about me. Uh, if you want to have sex, then, then we're going to. Relatedly here then, as you see in 1 Corinthians, uh, as you see in this passage, sex then is not self-gratification. Uh, it's a big thing Spence talked about last week, so I won't go into too much more here today. A uh, very worldly perspective, but it flows from this idea, it not being about you. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's an e- easier shift for a Christian uh, to make, but still hard because we're so full of ourselves still so full of sin, but to see sex as a context for serving someone else and saying this is a way to serve, this is a way to put you first, it's a way to please you, not myself, and the other person to say that about uh, the other individual, so husband to wife, wife to husband, uh, that's really what it, it's about because it's a form of love, and we know biblically love is not selfish. It, it looks out for, uh, for the other person. It's also why things like pornography and masturbation and fornication are such a lonely and cheap counterfeit. Uh, habitual uh, viewing of pornography and associated masturbation or just fornication, sleeping with someone like your boyfriend or girlfriend or just a stranger. There's a reason why this is such a lonely uh, counterfeit because either you're just alone and you're not meant to be alone when you're having sex or with an image, you're, but you're alone. It's just lo- going to let you down. It's lonely. It makes you kind of turn inwards and be very disappointed afterwards. Or with fornication, it could be a real person, even someone you care about, but outside the context of commitment and marriage, it's still a, a lonely and cheap counterfeit because what you're doing is you're giving the entirety of yourself. There's, there's no way to give yourself more to someone than giving up your entire body to them uh, to enjoy. And so when you do that, and, and then if you're not married to them, what happens afterwards, well, that's over, you snatch it back. It's a tease. You toy with them. You toy with yourself, and you toy with, we toy with other people too, whether we do this in our mind or actually our bodies. Uh, this, is what ha- this is why it's such a lonely and cheap counterfeit type thing, because we're acting like we're married when we're not, and we give everything, and then we take it away. Everything, and then we take it away, and uh, we don't commit. So but we know the, co- the contrast of that, then, just to go to back to what the Scriptures actually say about good sex, is sex is a form of true love. And love is not selfish. Love gives, love serves, love pleases the other in a safe and committed environment until death parts. So again, in all this then, uh, going back to, we'll finish up the human side here, but in all this, good sex is a part of God's gift of marriage. 
It's a selfless coming together at the highest level. It battles separation, even if separation is just clothing or distance. It gives, it serves, it pleases the other. And, and the beautiful thing about defining things this way, this is partly why we do the hard work of really defining this physical thing a lot. And this is sex today is the issue, but it could be anything else. We talk about this physical event of the Old Testament pretty well or some festival that Israel celebrated or a psalm or something like sex or eating together like meals, common biblical motif. We explain it really well because when we explain it really well, we actually start to understand quite a bit more about the gospel of Jesus Christ as a wonderful byproduct of that at the same time, which is to where, we now, where we now turn. So the divine side then asks the question of what does sex have to do with the gospel? And remember now how we started this series a few weeks back. We started it by noting how, and I said this before today too, but how God not only designed marriage, but sex within the marriage covenant. And one of the first things that happens in the Bible is, is God makes two people, Adam and then Eve, and officiates their wedding essentially. We know that they're married because Eve is called wife in the second chapter of the Bible. So we know that that's occurring. It's not just a man and a woman, but a married uh, man and a woman. And then they have sex. They become one flesh. So you're reading about God making everything out of nothing, doing these amazingly miraculous things, speaking, and there's suns and moons and stars and animals and plants and oceans and land and people and all of that. And then all of a sudden people are having sex in chapter 2, which is interesting. It tells us a lot, right? It tells us a lot that there's, even just by placement, it tells us that this is important. This is significant. God isn't, wasn't twiddling his thumbs here with this principle. He's actually wanting it to occur right away. He creates gender as well, indifference amongst the genders, comp complementarity in all of this to uh, anatomy, to allow this to uh, intercourse, to allow intercourse to occur so that it might become one flesh, which is literally intercourse. It's more than intercourse, but it's not less than that. Uh, so that's happening right away for a reason. So then we have to ask the question, well, why? Why this, right? Why marriage, we've been asking throughout the series, but also why sex? And the answer is, it tells us something about God. And all this is based on Ephesians 5, 31 to 32, which says, there, this is Paul in the New Testament, the apostle, quoting Genesis 2, which we, I just alluded to. He says, therefore, God speaking, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So there's the sex part right there, but this is the key. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Is that fascinating? So he's saying that he's, he's spiritualizing the element uh, by, by saying that it's not only, and look at the, the, the two will become one flesh clause, but it's not just marriage that refers to Christ in the church as a picture of God's love for lost people, him being the groom, us being the, the bride, but it's also particularly sex that refers uh, to Christ in the church uh, from how it's written here. So then the question becomes, how does sex refer to Christ in the church? How does the sexual aspect of marriage in particular, not just broadly marriage, how does the sexual aspect of marriage in particular point us to a greater spiritual reality in Christ? And the answer is, and I'll just state the broad answer here and come back and explain it a little bit more. We'll just scratch the surface this morning, but... Um, the answer is, by demonstrating physically the spiritual reality of our union with God through his Son. The spiritual reality of our union with Christ. One of the main doctrines of the Christian faith is that we are one with Christ. When he dies for our sins, we're not, we're not just 
stamped as saved. We're not, it's not just a transaction. We actually become one spirit with our creator. It's huge. It's one of the more mysterious, kind of hard-to-grasp doctrines. And so because of that, it, it gets left by the wayside quite often in the church. But it is uh, the, the most important one, you could say, as it flows from the cross, of course, and the empty tomb, the benefit that we get, it is uh, the most principle in a lot of ways doctrine of the Christian faith. And it's a mystery, as Ephesians 5 said, but in general, it has to do, we're not going to talk about all of it today, certain aspects we'll leave on the cutting room floor, but it has to do generally with being saved unto closeness with Him. So close, in fact, that we live in Him, the Bible says, by the Holy Spirit and He in us. No more barrier whatsoever uh, in, in between. And actually, visually, and this is um, one of those, going back to the two shall become one flesh thing, I don't think it's a coincidence that a man physically enters his wife with intercourse. Because I think that the Holy Spirit, or God himself, this is obviously a metaphor, it's not one-to-one literal correlation, but the Bible says that God comes into us as well. He enters into us by his Holy Spirit and resides here. Like, we are his temple. Uh, We are the place now, the gathered people of God, messy, but saved by grace. This is where he resides. And he says over and over again, I will be in you and you in me. And so him being that ultimate groom, I think there's a lot of, lot of uh, correlation there, uh, which almost could serve as its own sermon, but we're not going to go there today. So, but the key is, no more barriers whatsoever in between. Hugely good news. One place this comes up elsewhere in the Bible, actually, New Testament, 1 Corinthians 6, for as it is written, same Genesis sentence here, the two will become one flesh. But look how he spiritualizes this. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. That fascinating? So man and a woman become one flesh when they have sex. Christian becomes one spirit. He's spiritualizing that principle. Become one spirit in the same way with God when we believe. So how's that happen? It's a mystery. Paul, remember the Bible labels something a mystery? Just rest with it. It's a mystery. Don't try to define that anymore. Just say, all right, can't fully understand that, but it's, but it's true. We at least understand that, we're that, that we have that type of closeness and oneness because of how Jesus, much Jesus died on the cross for our sins 2,000 years ago. John 17, Jesus praying, I in them, believers, he's praying to God the Father, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, love them, even as you loved me. Which is amazing, because both these are telling us many things, one of which is, this is not simply a future hope. This is not saying, and we'll have this when Jesus comes back again. It's saying, if you're a Christian, you have this reality now. You're one spirit with God. You're one spirit with Jesus Christ, and there's absolutely no more barrier between you and him whatsoever. Your sin is that much taken away. And the inference, then, of course, is that this was not always the case, and this is not true for those who are not in Christ, right? They are still out of Christ or outside of him or distant, which is where we all were uh, in the room. If you're Christians now, you were once there. That was your past. It's not your present. It's your past. And you look back to it and rejoice that you haven't stayed there, that God didn't allow you to stay there, but he's brought you close. So now to sprinkle this a bit from song four, uh, there's, there's one segment here I want to really focus on uh, today. There's a lot of other parts of this passage we could spend time on. It's just so rich, and a lot of, but a lot of it we've already looked at in this series. So I want to hone in here because it's just new, but also because of how it answers this question. How does sex refer to Christ and the church? How does it uh, lead us symbolically and poetically to the same idea. Uh, let me read this, 11 and 12. 
Your drips, your lips drip like nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. So let's talk about some of this imagery. Remember, one of the best questions you can ask about a passage to interpret it is, where else in the Bible do you see this imagery? Where else does it come up that, you know, more clearly blows that fog or more clearly handles it so you can use it to interpret the more foggy parts? And in this particular passage, there's a lot here, but to hone in on garden, honey, and milk, garden, honey, and one hand, and honey and milk on the other hand, are fairly explicit references to the Garden of Eden on the one hand and the promised land of the Old Testament on the other hand, which are two Old Testament places of blessing where God especially resided and signify his presence, but that sinners, our people, are later kicked out of because they sin. They worship other gods. They rebel against him, and they're separated in different types of exile away from him. One place you see this, especially the, the former imagery there, just to make sure this dot, these two dots are connected. The garden's more clear, but not so much honey and milk. In Exodus 3, God is speaking to Israel, who's uh, enslaved in Egypt, and one, this is a promise, hence the promised land, phraseology there. But And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, which is the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, one of the, the bigger adjectival ideas you get about the promised land is there's going to be lots of milk and honey there. And so we have that in Song 4 as well, but used poetically. And so the link is intended to be made. So it, it, just in terms of a chart then, what you have here is... Uh, on the left, and this is, it's cyclical. So we're supposed to pick up on these things as happening more than once to teach us something and really hone in on this greater reality of exile from God. So whether it's Adam and Eve or Israel, they're in a place of blessing like the Garden of Eden or the Promised Land uh, it, later in the story, but sin in both cases exiles them from God's presence. In the former, the garden, which is later locked up by cherubim, which really hones in on the Song 412 thing here on the bottom, uh, and then also uh, with the second row there, uh, sin led Israel to Babylon a little bit later in the story uh, as well. But again, with Song 412 in mind as well, and this is before sex, but just to refer to this woman, this bride, as a garden locked up and sealed, uh, makes us, alludes to and makes us remember how the Garden of Eden back at the early parts of the story was locked up by God. God kicks out Adam and Eve because they sinned against him places angelic cherubim with flaming swords to guard the way back to the tree of life so they could not partake of that fruit which ensures their eventual death. So a picture of, picture of judgment. And what this is all intending to tell us then, and I'll just give you a really quick biblical theology lesson on these matters. There's a lot more to say about this, but all of this is not just happening on an island. These are microcosms of your experience, microcosms of my experience. This is, all, this is about humanity. Not just Adam and Eve, uh, from whom we all come anyway, but not just about Israel. This is about us. This is about the human race being exiled from his presence. So they're microcosms of our greater experience of being close to God, but all have sinned, the Bible says, and we've been exiled from God's presence. From de- and and we, earn, we earn death and hell along the way. So this, this physical exiles that happen along the story are, are just pictures. They're, they're, they're not ultimate realities. They're demonstrations of what's really going on with every human heart who has ever lived. You are not where God is. You are not, and I am not. Uh, in our pre-Christian state, if you're a Christian, it's a different story, but 
This is the bad news. It's a hellish reality, actually. It's damning news, but it's all of our stories. And the Bible says you need to know this so you understand there's bad news that needs to be remedied. And you can't get back. There's no overcoming the cherubim earlier in the story. Adam and Eve don't overcome the flaming swords and get back in on their own effort. Only God makes a way back. And we'll come to that. But that's what actually makes Song of Solomon a gospel book and a good news book. Because here in today's passage in Song of Solomon 4, this Garden of Eden imagery and Promised Land imagery is not used in a damning way. It's not, it's not holding it out and saying, you can't have this, or locked forever. There's no cherubim in this poem, right? No cherubim with flaming swords. It's not a sexual tease. This is, this is rather mentioned and written in a consummative, sharing, partaking kind of way where we get to have it, right? It's good news. I mean, to drop this type of language in the Old Testament storyline is deeply prophetic and hope-giving. It keeps with things like Isaiah 44, 22, elsewhere in the Old Testament, which says, God speaking, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. And here's the key. Return to me because you're not where I am right now. But he's speaking this to Israel and really the world watching. Come back. Why or how? For I have redeemed you. I've taken away your sins and transgressions. You can come back to me now. You can get back in the garden. You come back to the promised land. You can partake of honey and milk. You can be in me and I in you. No more barriers. This is the problem with all of us. This is the problem of, of, of humanity, the human race. This is something we have not overcome, but God himself has spoken into the problem. You see, whether it's through poetry or a love story, a kingly, a kingly love dialogue, or whether it's Israel's history, whether it's the prophets, but ultimately this is how, this is how he spoke. He spoke through his son. Like in Song 5.1, it suggests here that he's going to end this separation and his love would be the thing that accomplishes it. And when Jesus says uh, later in his ministry that something greater than Solomon is here, like the Solomon in the Song of Solomon, I, I am like him, I'm resembling him, but I'm greater than him. We connect all these dots to say that it's his love for his bride, the church, that accomplishes a return for God's people to not just be close, but to be in to walk amongst, the cool, as Genesis 3 says, the cool of the day like Adam and Eve used to before sin entered the world where God was and he would talk to them face to face. That's, where, that's how we get back. But until sin is resolved, we have no access. So we have this though in his son. 1 John 3.16 uh, says that by this we know love. By this we know love that his, his son laid down his life for us. This is how we know what it is. It's sacrificial. This is how we get back to Eden. This is, this is how we get back to the promised land. His love leads us back that we might be with him where he is. Again, union with Christ. So to wrap this up then, a couple of things here, and I'll quote the others, the friends of the woman here, the single friends. It's interesting that they're encouraging sex here, uh, but it's, it's part of the story. They're, they're saying, eat friends, drink, and be drunk with love. This is, a, this is the imperative we get, actually, uh, in Song 4. Be drunk with love. Be drunk with love in two ways. Physically, if you're married, have lots of sex with your spouse. You need to do that. You need to be that close to each other. Your marriage will suffer if you don't. 
And, and I know that this is a broad, sweeping generalization. If your marriage is suffering, there's probably lots of reasons for that. I'm not trying to oversimplify. Uh, there's probably not fighting fairly or just not being on the spiritual same page or communication issues or who knows, a slew of other things, laziness. could be just a ton of stuff going on. Um, but at the same time, the scriptures do encourage this. And, and it's not, if you're waiting, sometimes if you're in a bad spot maritally, waiting until you really, really, really want to have sex uh, may just not happen for a while. I think that one of the encouragements that we give people, uh, you know, Aletha and I, we practice this too, but give people that are in that spot is just have sex. It's kind of a, some of you guys are like, duh, you're engaged, you're thinking, has this ever happened, uh, you know, in marriage? But, um, but just do it because, because sex will beget sex. Sex will make you want to have more sex. If you're waiting for kind of just the feeling sometimes if you're in a really bad spot maritally, uh, it just could take a long time to get there. And actually, if, you ever, if you've ever received that advice to, you know what, if just sex isn't working, just take a break for a few weeks, don't listen to that advice. It's terrible advice. <laughs> it's terrible marital advice. Uh, better yet, the, be- the better angle on it is just have sex and it will beget more in your marriage. But again, we're saying this not just because the Bible makes this passing command. We're saying this because it tells the right gospel story. It tells the right story. Because to give yourself completely to another person is to image God giving himself completely to you. To give yourself completely to another person in a committed, safe environment, completely, you're opening completely up, you're inviting that person in physically and emotionally and spiritually. To do that regularly is to tell the right story that God did this for us. God has done, he he is doing, he will do this, something like this for us on a spiritual level. And it tells that right story to your own heart and to your spouse and and even others as they kind of glean that marriage is in a good spot. So Paul encourages us to do that. Give yourself sexually. Tell the right gospel story. Do not deprive one another because God has not deprived us of salvation. God has not deprived us of himself. He's not, let, he's not held back his grace and love to us, but, but poured it out in abundance for us to enjoy. So physically there's that and all the other things we mentioned earlier, but spiritually though, secondarily for all, married or not, Uh, is be drunk with love, divinely. Uh, Psalm 34 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Rest in the fact that you are one with him, not by works, but by grace. I think one of the reasons why God has chosen sex to be a picture of the gospel is that sex is not a conditional act of love. And I know it could be perverted, and for for sure this this happens, but good sex, anyway, is not a conditional act of love. It's just simply desired. When good sex occurs in marriage, it's not a preconditioned, uh, you know, it's not preconditioned on um, any act of moral uprightness or anything like that. And, and God, I think, speaks into that and says, salvation's kind of like that. Do you feel close to your spouse when you have sex? Is it, is it a good experience? Well, God's saying salvation is metaphorically, spiritually, kind of like that. And how strange would it be, you know, to have sex with your spouse and just kind of lie there and say, well, now that that's over, that's really important that you just get your act together and just be more kind so I love you more, you know, or something like that. Just be silly, right? It never happens. You just, you just lie there and enjoy one another and talk and have a conversation or whatever it is. And God is, again, he's speaking into these things saying salvation is like that. No law, no, no, no doing, no trying to, trying to perform before him. If we really understood that we're one with God, we would stop trying to be good people. If we really understood that there's no, nothing else that, that needs to happen between us and him, we would rest. We'd stop the charade. We'd say, God, I'm a fool. I'm a mess. 
clean me up. And then we'd meditate on these types. See, it's one thing to say you're saved from your sins. It's another to say more specifically, you're one with God in your salvation from your sin. Because that implies that there's no more religious effort that's needed. And there never was. God does it all. They're simply enjoying, enjoying him. That's really the, the, the essence of, of our salvation is to enjoy his presence, to be in that garden and promised land through his son, Jesus Christ, forever and ever because he made it possible by his spilt blood for, for us. So rest in that, you guys. I know I'm speaking to probably dozens of Christians. I need to hear it. Probably all of you to a degree. If you're not a Christian yet, you're getting us on the front end of, uh, the front end of this. You are saved. This is saying in its own poetic, interesting, kind of windy roadway, you are saved by grace, not by your moral effort. And sex, good, healthy sex in a marriage helps us kind of get at that uh, in, in a unique kind of way. But if you're, if you're single, not ha- never had sex, not having sex, doesn't matter. Point is, this is just a shadow, these types of things, to this greater reality that God says, this is what he wants for you. Believe, rest, rejoice in the God who has sent his son into the world to die for your sins, and to be one spirit with you forever on this new heaven and new earth that he's recreating now and he will consummate one day when he returns. That's the hope that we have. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful one that lets us put down our swords, our weapons, our charades, and just enjoy, enjoy him for his grace. Let me pray. God, thank you for this song. Thank you for your word, which in a variety of ways through different genres comes at the, the idea, well, the gospel, but from the angle of sex and one fleshness. Uh, thank you, God, that you created it. It's a good thing. It's just simply a gift. Uh, at the same time, there's something deeply spiritual about it. Not only does it battle Satan and push back demonic hordes of darkness, but at the same time, it can tell a right gospel story when we're realizing that we're not our own kings or queens anymore. We're not we don't have authority anymore over our life. We give ourselves to someone. We're telling a good gospel story. Uh, when we're becoming one flesh with someone, we're telling the right gospel story. Uh, marriage itself does that. Sex does that uh, in a particular level. So thank you, God, that we, we have that movement from trying to perform before you to simply resting. You don't give us new commandments, no, no, burden, no burdensome commands to keep, uh, to earn your love. You just simply give your love to us, and you show it to us in the most unlikely of ways on a bloody cross among criminals, in a shameful, naked, stripped-down, tortured way. Uh, Thank you that you have died for our sins. There's no sin bigger than your blood, no sin bigger than your son, no sin bigger than your grace. Your love is amazing. It's stronger than death. It has certainly won us back and moved us to yourself. We pray for more of that too, God, that you convert more people in this room, in our city, that more would believe that you have, in fact, become a human being and died on a cross for our sins, helping to tell that ultimate story that sex can only at best point to. But we pray uh, for those in the room that, that you want it to point to in a really experiential way that it certainly would do that in a healthy, true, godly manner in a way that's worshipful. Uh, but in all this, God, we give you praise in Christ's name.